Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. In response to the Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, we decided to re-release our episode with historian Sally Roche-Wagner about the feminist pioneer Matilda Jocelyn Gage. In 1881, Matilda wrote the following in her suffrage newspaper. To say when and how often a woman chooses to go down into the valley of the shadow of death to give the world another child should be hers alone to say. The law of motherhood should be entirely under woman's control. In 1892, opposing laws that restricted sharing information about and the practice of birth control and abortion, Matilda wrote, Unless the American people rouse to instant action, we shall soon find our government turned into a monarchy, church and state united, and the people no better than serfs. Matilda also wrote, Enforced motherhood is a crime against the body of the mother and the soul of the child. We couldn't agree more. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets, a middle grade novel due out in May. And I'm Evie O'Hallam. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question, and in this episode, we consider what does it mean and what does it take to devote your life's work to a single subject? In this case, that life's work is recovering for history the contributions of a suffragist who should be a household name but isn't, Matilda Jocelyn Gage. She was the equal partner of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and there are reasons you haven't heard of her. The writer we're talking to is scholar Sally Roche-Wagner. We are so grateful to our friend Mark Aceto. He was our guest in episode 23, Test Driving the AI that Helps to Predict and Create Bestsellers. Mark introduced us to Sally, whom he met while researching his magnum opus, which is a cultural history of musical theater. Mark was blown away by his conversations with Sally, and he promised we would be too. And... Boy, was he right. So true. true. (laughs) Do not think for a minute that this is some dry investigation of a small, minor footnote to history. This episode is the podcast version of scholarly clickbait. This is like a BuzzFeed headliner with famous frenemies and their shocking betrayals. And there are reveals and surprises and moments of we were stunned. So be sure to listen to the very end because your perception of the Wizard of Oz will be changed forever. (laughs) All of that is true. It's also an episode with fascinating and timely lessons about power, how it's exercised, how it should be exercised, and the politics within social change movements, and how history is made, and how it should be made. We've had some great episodes. This is definitely among my favorites. Ah, Mine too. So Dr. Sally Roche-Wagner is a founder of one of the first college-level women's studies programs in the United States. It's at California State University, Sacramento, and she's taught women's studies for 50 years. She's the founder and executive director of the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation and Center for Social Justice Dialogue. An expert on the suffrage movement, her recent articles have appeared in Ms. Magazine and the New York Daily News. And she appeared in and wrote the faculty guide for the Ken Burns documentary, Not For Ourselves Alone. 
Her anthology, The Women's Suffrage Movement, with a foreword by Gloria Steinem, unfolds a new intersectional look at the 19th century women's rights movement. Sisters in Spirit, Haudenosaunee, Iroquois, Influence on Early American Feminists, documents the surprisingly unrecognized authority of Native women who inspired the suffrage movement. Okay, so let's get started. We began the interview by asking Sally to tell us the story of how her interest in Matilda Jocelyn Gage began. Here's what she said. Well, I think the forerunner is that I hated history. You know, it was the great men, great wars, great dates. And I, as a radical feminist, really hated the suffrage movement because it was 72 years of teacup ladies politely asking men if they would kindly, kindly give them the vote. That was the story I heard. Mm -hmm. So I came into, (laughs) I suppose, my love for Matilda Jocelyn Gage kicking and screaming, if you will. I was teaching in the Women's Studies program at California State University, Sacramento, and I was teaching an introduction to the women's movement class, and this would have been in 1972 or 73. And a friend of mine, doing research on the suffrage campaign in 1890 in South Dakota, knew that I was from South Dakota and that I grew up in Aberdeen. And she came rushing over one day and said, have you ever heard of a woman named Matilda Gage? She was an important suffragist and she had some connection to Aberdeen. Well, I had not included the suffrage movement in my introduction class. So it was, oh, huh, okay, suffrage, not so interested, but Matilda Gage, my mom has a friend. I called up my mom and said, how could this be? Your friend isn't, Matilda's not that old, is she, to be a suffragist? My mom laughed and said, no, that was her grandma. She's a really important suffragist, along with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And she starts telling me all this stuff about Matilda. I said, how do you know about this? And she said, well, Matilda and I did a skit for the Dakota Territorial Pioneers. And I played Susan B. Anthony and Matilda played her grandmother. So I say, so why didn't you ever tell me about this? And she said, hmm, I guess you never asked. (laughs) So that summer, I went back to South Dakota and uh, asked my mom if she'd set up a meeting for me with Matilda. I almost didn't do it because it was a really hot day and I didn't have air conditioning in my van. And But I, okay, I'll go spend an hour. And I walk into her house and Matilda, she was, this is my grandma's furniture. This is a picture of her. This is her. I wasn't interested in anything of that. I just wanted a good story, quite honestly. One anecdote that I could share with my class. Then she took me into her dining room. She had a big table and it was literally piled with letters that had not been opened in probably a hundred years. Letters from Matilda. There were photo albums, scrapbooks of Matilda Jocelyn Gage's writings. And I thought, oh, this would be fun to kind of leaf through it and see what's here. 
picked up a letter, and I don't remember the exact words, but it was something to the effect of, Mrs. Stanton is the Benedict Arnold of our movement. But she is nothing compared to Susan B., who has destroyed our movement. And I was that was the moment. Wow. What are... <laughs> what a thing to stumble on. Wow. You grow up on Nancy Drew Mysteries, and then you have one placed in front of you, and boom, you jump. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's hard to even know where to go from there. But Mark has told me that you've described your relationship with Matilda Gage as the longest of your life. Can you tell us more about your relationship with her? I I am in a relationship with a live woman who I love dearly, but I have been in a relationship with a dead woman for the majority of my life, which is kind of an odd thing, but there are advantages to it. You know, we don't get into many fights. I always win. Yeah. <laughs> I went back to graduate school and got one of the first doctorates and for work in women's studies because I wanted to learn how to talk to this dead woman. And so I studied, you know, historiography and realized that there was this whole thing that you are supposed to remain emotionally aloof from your subject because obviously you couldn't care about them and write about them with any distance and dispassion. And I thought, that is just bullshit. That is male-fearing intimacy. That's all that is. Because if you love somebody, you do fight with them. You don't absorb them. I mean, is that the male fear of intimacy? Yeah. If you get too close to a dead person, you're going to not be able to be critical of them. Quite honestly, Matilda Jocelyn Gage is a pain in the ass. She is a <laughs> royal pain in the ass. And it's because she is so consistently good. She's not a very pleasant person. Mm -hmm. She's volatile and she's sometimes rough in her speech. I mean, there's a letter she writes to a, a woman she worked with. My dear Mrs. Robinson, I think you are perfectly incomprehensible. And then she goes on to explain why. So she's gruff, but she is principled to a fault. And that calls me to my highest self always. You know, the best part of us is always also the biggest pain in the ass. It's the hardest part about us. And understanding that, I love her and I also understand her limitations. Quite honestly, Elizabeth Cady Stan's a whole lot more fun to hang out with. Lighter. She loves ice cream. She's, you know, she's not so principled. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't challenge me. But Gage, phew, I am on my toes around that woman every minute. Amazing. What was Matilda like with her own family? Was there a softer side to her? Oh, absolutely. Here's the story. After her death, a neighbor who lived across the street writes to her son and says, she was a radical woman, and she was criticized, but you need to know this about her. Your mother was an incredibly kind woman. There was one day when there was a, 
Um, the working stiff, somebody who probably was homeless and traveling around doing work, economically really tough times, comes to the door. Do you have a crust of bread, anything? I'm hungry. She actually was leaving. She was heading, I think, probably to Syracuse probably to do her newspaper. She was busy, 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 this woman. This busy woman says, come on in. She stokes up the wood-burning stove and cooks him a full meal and then goes off and does her work. There's that kind of generosity of spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're the leading authority on Matilda Gage, and it sounds like you have such a rich treasure trove of detailed, detailed information. I know that you're working on a book about her. Can you tell us about the book and what it's like to write about her? Ah, well, Mark, our mutual friend, is the one who really inspired this. I have tried to write a biography of Matilda. I did a short one that is now out of print. And then I did a medium-sized one. This is like the three bears, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I never finished it because it was like, "Mm, this just isn't right. And then when I wrote the faculty guide for Not For Ourselves Alone, the Ken Burns film on Stanton and Anthony, at the grand opening of the film. And I sat next to Greg, who writes Ken's scripts, and he apologized for Gage not being in it. He said, you know what? There really isn't a biography of Anthony that's been done recently, and Stanton could use another one. Why not do a triple biography? So I wrote 200 pages of a triple biography of the three of them, put that aside, and never did anything with it. And it just nothing fit. And then I'm in this conversation with Mark, and it was the aha moment of it's me and Matilda. It's mm-hmm. it's this relationship. It's this this love affair, if you will, this dedicating my life to bringing this woman into her rightful place in history. I don't want to speak of her in this detached manner of here is this person and I'm writing about them. No, I am in relationship with this woman. And that's the form of it. And has the writing process been noticeably different for you when you take that approach as opposed to the other attempts that you had at the various biographical forms? Yeah, just flows. Can you imagine walking into a house, flipping through the old, long, unread letters of a suffragist and seeing Mrs. Stanton is the Benedict Arnold of our movement, but she has nothing compared to Susan B., who has destroyed our movement? No. Can you imagine? No, I can't. No. And this is in Aberdeen, South Dakota. I mean, that is off the beaten path. Well, yeah, which isn't even where <laughs> Matilda lived. I mean, she just went there for yeah. summers. Crazy. It just seems like the odds were pretty high that these could have been lost forever, these letters. But the right woman walked in and she picked up the right letter. I know, I know. And along those lines, Mark told me a great story that we didn't even get into with Sally. He said that one of the reasons one of the many reasons no one had done the work Sally had done before she did it is because Matilda had terrible handwriting that nobody could read. And yet from that moment when Sally picked up that letter at random, she 
could read it. She read it as easily as she could read her own. I mean, it just feels like the universe was pushing these two women together. Isn't that incredible? Sally has also done us all a great service by forming the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation, which is a nonprofit dedicated to educating the public about Matilda Gage and her work. The foundation includes a museum that's located in the home where Matilda herself lived for more than 40 years in Fayetteville, New York. Susan B. Anthony scratched her name in the upstairs library window of this house when the women were working on the history of women's suffrage. The house was offered as a station on the Underground Railroad. L. Frank Baum lived there for a time. He is Matilda's son-in-law, but we all know him as the author of The Wizard of Oz. There's more on the connection between him and Matilda later in this episode. Yes. And can we just say road trip? Totally. And speaking of later in this episode, let's get back to the interview. In February, Sally gave a Zoom talk with Gloria Steinem that was sponsored by the South Dakota Humanities Council. During the conversation, Gloria Steinem said about Matilda, quote, she was the woman who was ahead of the women who were ahead of their time. We asked Sally what Gloria meant by that. And here's what she said. I think she is a visionary and intersectional in a unique way. Here's a couple examples. In the Civil War, during the Civil War, she's asked to present the flag that the women of Fayetteville have made for the local 122nd Infantry Division, and they will carry this off to war. Now, this is 1863, when Lincoln is saying the war is being fought to preserve the Union. And Gage says to the soldiers going off to war, this war is not about preserving the Union. This war is about ending slavery. And this is an incredibly important fight for freedom. And then she goes on to say, there will be no permanent peace until there is absolute equality for every group. Men and women, rich and poor, native born and immigrant, black and white. I mean, this is intersectionality in 1863. The end of her book, her major work, Woman, Church, and State. It's online and searchable. Or you can buy your own copy through the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation. (laughs) Anyway, the end of the book, she says, we're in the midst of a revolution such as the world has never seen. It is women against the tyranny of church and state. We mark its beginnings. Its process will destroy every existing institution. The result will be a transformed world. Gosh, that's still relevant today. She could have said that today. Yeah. And incidentally, in this book, she exposes sex trafficking in the United States. And she also calls out Catholic priests for sexually abusing children. Wow. Wow. That I find really depressing, actually. (laughs) (laughs) That everybody knew it in in the 1860s or whatever it was. 1893, and she's just naming it. Yep. Yeah. Um, You said something during that talk with Gloria Steinem that I have been dying to know more about. You said that oral history is more accurate than written history. What did you mean by that? I meant it's more accurate than written history. (laughs) (laughs) You give a little more more context. (laughs) A little more detail here, shall we? (laughs) Um, 
I always thought of oral history as the telephone game, right? You know, you start it and then five people later, it doesn't even sound like what you began with. And I think it's because we don't learn to listen. We learn to see and we see the written word and we believe that. Well, I think that actually written history is the telephone game. And oral history is people who have learned to listen with the deaf. Here's an example. The Gaiwio, the the um the coat of hands and like the 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 teachings of the the spiritual, uh, I don't know how to describe this as an outsider in a in a clear way. Um, he was a prophet that came to the Haudenosaunee, I suppose, ugh, in Western terms. That's not very good, but maybe gives an idea. It takes five days to recite. It takes five days to recite. And there are speakers each of the five nations, as far as I know, who can recite the entire five days of the Code of Hensley. That's how an oral history gets passed down. These are people who really, really hear in a different way. Because if you don't have a written language for most of your history, you have learned this oral tradition. Mm-hmm. The reason I think that white historians or Western historians are playing the telephone game is that typically historians build on each other's work, which is fine, except by the time you get to the fifth derivation of the person who did the original research in the primary sources, you've got a friggin' telephone game. Uh, somebody who's not getting it quite right. You've got somebody who doesn't have the context. And so that's what I meant. Got it. That's fascinating. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about Native American women. And this is my last reference to that conversation that you had with Gloria Steinem, which was such an interesting, interesting hour. And at one point she said, Native American women were remembering what the rest of us were imagining in the future. Can you tell us more about the interactions that white suffragists would have had with Native American women in the 19th century and also how Native American cultures were a model for a more sexually egalitarian society? Here's what I understand now, and I'm speaking as an outsider, and the real story is embedded in the women who live it and continue to live it today. We celebrated last year in the United States, a hundred years of women having a political voice in our government. They continue to have and have had political voice for a thousand years. A hundred years, a thousand years. Do you think maybe they might have something to teach us? Mm -hmm. The 19th century suffragists, the the pioneering women suffragists, did they consciously incorporate these ideals, these Native American ways of thinking into their own prescriptions for what kind of society they wanted to see? Well, I think there's all kinds of things along the way, but the biggie for me is to believe in a cooperative rather than a competitive society. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, on her 80th birthday, huge gathering, thousands of women gather. She says, 
we're going to get the vote soon. But the next great step is cooperation. And then she calls for, we need to rewrite the Bible as well. But the need for a cooperative, not a competitive society, where did they get that idea? Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, living among people who lived in a cooperative society where actually there was no hunger until contact and colonization. Can we just pause for a second to emphasize how forward thinking Matilda was? That quote of hers from 1863, there will be no permanent peace until there is absolute equality for every group, men and women, rich and poor, native born and immigrant, black and white. We still don't have that equality and we still don't have peace. Yeah. Not to mention the calling out of Catholic priests for sexual abuse in the 1800s and the recognition of how problematic the views of women are in the church. I know. Her beliefs were a challenge to every form of hierarchy, right? Sexual, racial, religious, class, you name it. Yeah, yeah. Well, in this next part of the interview, Sally talks about how it was Matilda's forward-thinking beliefs that got her erased from history. We talked a little bit about the power of the word, and I know that Matilda was a prolific writer. Countless pamphlets, some of which were hundreds of pages long, speeches, books, articles. Can you say a little bit about why she is not a household name like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton? Because Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, well, especially Susan B. Anthony, I shouldn't probably call out Elizabeth for it as much. But Anthony really, and the growing conservative women's suffrage movement wrote her out. Mm. There's a lot of details there, a lot of ways she did it. 1876, Gage writes these statements to each of the national political conventions. Anthony sends them off to the New York papers with Anthony's name on them and Anthony's name alone. When Gage dies, she, Stanton, and Anthony have done the first three volumes of the history of women's suffrage, 1,000 pages each. Anthony didn't do any of the writing because she had a terrible writer's block. So it's really Gage and Stanton who do the writing, and Anthony did the administrative stuff. Fourth volume comes out after Stanton and Gage are dead, and Anthony does it with her hand-picked biographer. And in it, she says, Mrs. Stanton and I, you know, in, in season and out of season, worked tirelessly on the first three volumes with the helpful assistance of Matilda Jocelyn Gage. And Gage's daughter calls her out for that, writes to her and says, what the heck are you up to? They know Anthony. You know, Anthony's been in their house when they were growing up. You cut my mother out of the publicity for this book. As though she hadn't done anything. And Anthony, oh, just a simple oversight and no problem was her response. The growing conservative movement, they become really much more Christian based. They have a minister as president several times. And they also practice racism as policy. They say, give women the vote because white women outnumber Negroes. It's a way to maintain white supremacy. Mm -hmm. It's also a way to maintain native born supremacy because there's more of us native born women than there are immigrants coming in. So you want to maintain white native born supremacy? Give us the vote. 
doing wink we will work with you and i think for for taking that position here's a woman who is saying that the foundation of woman's oppression is the christian church and she's saying never was justice more perfect never was civilization higher than with indigenous cultures she's an embarrassment mm. they don't want to have anything to do with her can you just Tell us what her actual role was vis-a-vis Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She comes into the movement in 1852 at the Third National Convention, the same convention that Anthony comes into the movement. She immediately becomes active in the movement, and she begins to write articles, stories, And she's well-published in the 50s. She's attending the conventions, unlike Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who doesn't attend a convention from Seneca Falls in 1848, I think until 1860. Wow. I mean, she's raising kids. She's doing all that. Anthony becomes a paid agent of both the abolition movement and then later the women's rights movement. She's incredibly active because she's getting paid for it. Gage isn't. She's a volunteer. In 1869, when and there's a whole story about the split between the abolition and the and the women's rights movement. But in 1869, two women's rights organizations are formed. One is the National Women's Suffrage Association. The other is the American. National is much more progressive. National is Gage, Stanton, and Anthony. They're the triumvirate of the National Women's Suffrage Association. They share leadership positions. Gage is president one year. Anthony is president one year. Stanton is the titular president most of the time. She hates meetings. She hates conferences. She hates conventions. She she doesn't usually come to them, but she's a prolific writer. Anthony is a great organizer of the conventions and that sort of thing. Gage is both. Gage is both an activist, an organizer, and a writer. So she bridges what these two women are doing, even though she is philosophically, intellectually, politically much, much closer to Stanton than she is to the conservative Anthony, who really from the beginning only wants the vote. Stanton and Gage increasingly by the 1880s want to go after the church. Because they're finally saying, look, we got to get to the foundation. What is the basis of this of oppression that we continue to suffer? And every time we try anything from wearing pants to asking for the vote, to fighting for the vote, it's the church that fights us. We're violating the edict that's all the way through the Bible, old to new, that women should be under the authority of man if we say that we want the vote. If we say we want our own possessions, women, of course, once they married, their husbands owned everything they had. So they're saying, we've got to go after the church. And so these two women are much closer than they are to Anthony, but they are the leadership. Can we talk about the racism of the leaders of the suffragist movement just a little bit more? I'm curious about why did Matilda tolerate the racism of her peers when she didn't agree with it? She didn't. 
she dropped out of the movement in 1890. That's when she's writing that about Anthony destroying the movement and Stanton being the Benedict Arnold. And what she's talking about is that in 1890, Susan B. Anthony really affected a merger between the national and the American, very different organizations. National is working for a federal amendment. American is working state by state and supporting states' rights. And it becomes a states' rights movement. Gage says, I'm not part of this. And she tries to undo the merger. She's unsuccessful. And so she goes on to form an organization to stop the culture to create Christianity as the official government religion and also to fight fundamentalism, fundamental Christianity, that is, she says, the oppressor of women. She is no longer part of the women's rights movement. She's done. She's out of there. And the reason she says Stanton is the Benedict Arnold is that initially Stanton says we need to be going after the church. Gage forms an organization to do that. Stanton initially says, I'm with you. I just don't want to be an officer. I'm tired of being an officer. So Gage assumes that Stanton's going to be part of the organization she forms. Anthony dangles the presidency of the merged organization in front of Stanton and Stanton bites. And she becomes the president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Wow. Um, So what are the chances that L. Frank Baum was the son-in-law of one of the leading suffragists of the 19th century? I mean, that's That's fabulous. What was Matilda's influence on the Wizard of Oz books? Well, she spends the last 14 years of her life. After her husband dies, every winter she closes up her home in Fayetteville and goes to live with the bombs. She develops a very close relationship with Frank. They're reading the same books. She is, according to bomb scholars, his intellectual mentor. Now, here's where I think the deepest influence is. The second book, you know, there's 14 books in the Oz series. Mm -hmm. The second book has a male protagonist, not Dorothy, Tip. And Tip is this boy's boy. He lives with an evil witch, Mombi. And there's a woman's revolution in the middle of the book. The women take over Oz and they prove to the men that they really need to be treated better. And so they resolve the revolution. And that's sort of the feminism light. Mm -hmm. At the end of the book, Tip discovers that she is a female trapped in a male body. She's really Ozma, the rightful ruler of Oz. She's been bewitched by this witch Mombi into a boy. If she's really to be who she is, she has to undergo a gender transformation. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Says, oh, I don't want to be a girl. Cowardly lion, tin woodman, scarecrow say, hey, wait a minute. Girls are every bit as good as boys. In fact, maybe they're better. We will love you just the same as a girl. And so at the end of the second book, Tip becomes Ozma, the two-spirit 
who rules Oz from the rest of the time forward. Now, that's on the cutting edge of gender politics. Today, 2020. Yeah. <laughs> hundred yeah. years later. That's and he amazing. wrote this book in 1904. Gosh. A trans kids book in 1904? Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. That's really incredible. Matilda Gage wasn't an also-round. She was a full partner of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Sally used the word triumvirate. And then Susan B. Anthony wrote her out of history. I mean, it is an outrage. Yeah. I keep thinking about what this says about power, whether you have to have a certain ruthlessness to be remembered and whether that's the model that's been set in our male-dominated society. And how do we fight to set a new model? One way, of course, is to bring the forgotten players back. Yes, which is what Sally did. It's been her work of the last five decades. She's traveled the country to unearth and decipher and contextualize all the different breadcrumbs. Contemporary documents like Matilda's writings and letters, newspaper articles from the era, witness accounts, you name it. The reason we know about Matilda Jocelyn Gage is because of Sally and her work. We're so grateful to her. For all of her work, we're grateful to her for coming on the podcast, and we're so glad to have some kind of a chance to spread news of her work to all of our listeners. I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Sally at sallyrochewagner.com and on Twitter at swagner711. You can find the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation and Museum at matildajocelyngage.org. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and